Welcome, everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum, and it's March 13, year 2008. Uh, the Ontolog invited speaker presentation again. And today, today we have uh, Mr. James Bryce Clark, uh, Director of Standards Development from OASIS, uh, joining us. And he will be presenting a talk entitled, Practical Lurches Towards Semantic Interoperability, Standards, Mashups in Production and in Development. So before uh, Jamie starts, uh, I would like to maybe introduce him a little bit. And uh, Mr. James Bryce Clark uh, is the director of standards development for OASIS and is a senior executive for this largest international open standards consortium for e-business. Uh, he is responsible for supervising the operations of 60 global expert technical committees across a wide range of internet topics including security, web services, e-commerce and e-government. Uh, he is a frequent speaker and invited expert on e-business, open standards, and automated contracting. Uh, recent presentations, including those in Beijing, Brussels, Delhi, Geneva, The Hague, uh, Helsinki, London, New York, Seoul, Santa Clara, Vancouver, Vienna, and Washington, D.C. So it looks like he travels a lot. He just got back in town, actually. And uh, he also continues to write for legal financial journals. Uh, I, the, the rest of his bio is captured on the page. Uh, one other thing to note is uh, Jamie holds a JD and a BSc degree from the University of Minnesota, and he is based in Los Angeles. So welcome, uh, Jamie, and uh, it's all yours. Thanks very much. Uh, I uh, Man, who writes those press releases? Uh, I, I do actually spend some time in front of my desk as well, uh, more uh, more than it may sound like. And uh, a lot of what I do as a executive for a standards organization is fill and uh, facilitate uh, the, the goals of our members because uh, we as standards executives don't create this stuff. We just help uh, the many experts and use case owners across the globe who want to create shared methods do so. Uh, I'm uh, looking at a deck of, uh, let's see, 41 slides this morning, and we'll see if we can't uh, keep up uh, with what I see on the screen as we go forward. I'll be calling out uh, each slide change as we progress, and, of course, we're now on slide one, which is the title slide. I'll suggest that we page over to slide two. Let's see. I'm uh, just watching my screen here, Peter, to make sure that at the outset that I'm seeing the progression of the slides. Okay, good. Here, here's the topics we're going to talk about uh, briefly today. I'm going to mention uh, very briefly who OASIS is for those who don't know. I'm going to tell you a few things about this conversation uh, itself this morning. And then I'm going to mention uh, briefly five instances of uh, current collisions 
uh, or perhaps if we uh, can be hopeful, happy marriages between the need for knowledge representation, semantic meaning and content, uh, and uh, things that are actually happening in e-commerce and electronic business today, uh, mostly in the context of standardization. Slide three. Uh, starting with the, the shortest version, which is Who's Oasis, slide four. Uh, we are uh, one of the largest uh, collaborative standards consortia uh, on earth that works in the area of XML and e-business. Uh, we have a website, and you can learn as much as you want about us from the website, so we'll dispense with further discussion about it. Slide six. I do want to mention to you, as we look very briefly at slide six and seven, which we can zip right by, that for Oasis, it's extremely important to us uh, that we work with other standards organizations in collaboration, and we put a great deal of our effort into making sure that uh, when we produce something, it is accessible to and uses uh, the, the methods created by other standardization projects, uh, and that we also, if you look at slide seven, pass along our work uh, uh, slide six, I'm sorry, to other organizations. Uh, standards are like your children. Uh, you, you work on them, you feed them, you clothe them, you hope to have them uh, raised uh, to where they're independent, and then they go off and do their own thing. They, like your children, they go to college somewhere you didn't expect. They uh, make friends and, and marry people you don't approve of. They go off and, and do things that you never would have imagined they would do, and basically you lose control of them altogether. And note uh, that as a standards organization, like a parent, uh, when they do that, it's called progress. So we see a lot of our work uh, traipse around and do things that we don't expect, and that's, uh, that's a win for us. It requires a certain amount of flexibility and a willingness to, uh, to let go of control of things once they've been created, but that's how our world ought to work. Uh, I note uh, with, with uh, fondness that the Ontolog group and project itself uh, sort of started out as a spin-off of people interested in semantic methods from the UBL project some many years ago now, uh, back when Peter and I were both uh, younger and better looking. Uh, so lots of things happen when you start working in standardization, and uh, we're pleased to be the focus for some of them. Uh, slide seven, and I will go on to simply say slide seven, eight, nine, and ten, and eleven. I'd suggest you simply page forward to slide eleven. Are simply a uh, progressive illustration of our map that we uh, use to keep track of our standards by tracking rough categories of our work with little uh, circles meaning uh, projects that have just started and bigger circles representing progressive levels of approval. Uh, this is not a rigorous uh, mathematical structure. It's simply a way for us to illustrate where we are seeing more or less activity in some of the basic uh, functional groupings of our work. Uh, I wouldn't want to make too much of this chart other than to, to say we're blessed to have a lot of projects uh, on many topics and uh, see, that seems likely to continue well into the future. Uh, I'm now on slide 12, which is the header slide colophon, to say a few things about the point of today's talk. Uh, and it, probably it should say disclaimer, uh, because this is more uh, a conversation about what uh, this talk is not. Uh, slide 13. 
there are a lot of wonderful people who are doing careful, rigorous, thoughtful things to make uh, uh, precise statements about what is and is not possible and, and how methods will and will not work. Uh, I was very uh, uh, I was delighted to have a chance to uh, asynchronously review uh, Professor Dogek's work from last week's ontologue. Unfortunately, I was on a plane in India at the time. I didn't get the call in. Uh, but uh, uh, the, uh, Professor Dogak's uh, presentation last week is an excellent example of somebody who is going in depth into a topic and explaining exactly how functionality might work and work well and give us some guidance for future activity. This isn't that kind of talk. We're just going to graze lightly on a few of the opportunity areas and problem areas where uh, semantics meaning and knowledge representation are uh, uh, working their way into practical existing uh, e-commerce and standardization projects. I probably will raise more questions and answers. I uh, probably will uh, only provoke further thought. Uh, but that's okay because that collision between semantics and uh, practical standards projects is really only just starting. And I'd expect us uh, to, to continue to see this uh, marriage or collision evolve over time. So uh, apologies that I'm giving you a bunch of pointers, raising a bunch of questions, and not necessarily being able to supply answers, but I hope that by these kinds of conversations, we as a collaborative community will, will learn more and uh, perhaps be in a position to, uh, uh, to, to get answers for some of those questions and understand better um, where the future will take us. Uh, slide... 14, uh, to, uh, to, to reuse something I, I said a, a year ago or so at a W3C workshop in e-government, uh, when we are creating uh, data standards that, that carry meaningful content, uh, we are doing so in an environment that, that varies uh, from, from case to case. In some cases, there's a small number of known expert transactors who exchange data all the time, know each other well, I uh, think, if you will, of the uh, group of banks that uh, send uh, fund transfers to each other. Uh, it, they have the expertise, they have the knowledge, they have a wide range of experience in, in problem solving, and there's not a lot of uh, problems with arbiting meeting between one bank and another when they're wiring money back and forth. Uh, but sometimes there are communities who, uh, who, who have uh, uh, less uh, uh, less of a degree of trust, understanding, and uh, commonality between them. Sometimes we are trying to get people who, to collaborate with each other who who know the field and who are experts, but who don't have the trust. Uh, uh, folks creating a contract who are opposing each other are one example. I'll suggest to you that the auto repair information uh, uh, specification, which we'll talk about a little later on, is the same case. They, the, 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 the shared knowledge is there, but the ability to rely on each other's uh, information without auditability is not. Uh, sometimes we have ambitious projects like the core components project where it is assumed that, uh, that the transactors will uh, do business with each other across a great gulf of different experience, different knowledge, uh, no prior contact, no independent basis for trust, and they'll simply have to communicate effectively uh, and, and reach transactions uh, across a, a gulf of, of different experience. So, uh, there's a knowledge representation angle uh, and, and a lot that we can offer each of those communities. But uh, if I have a thesis, roughly, 
it's that different communities uh, of, of users of these methods have different requirements and that we can sometimes uh, learn some things from understanding what the user base uh, is like. And with that, let me dive into the first example, which is the auto repair information uh, project, starting with slide 15. Slide 15 is a title slide, so I'll suggest we simply progress on to slide 16. Uh, if you build cars for a living, and you're an OEM, uh, you know a lot about the design of those cars. Uh, you, in fact, know more than anybody else, so it's pretty easy to have your uh, in-house dealer repair shops uh, for uh, uh, Toyota, for example, uh, have the manuals and the equipment and the parts and everything they need to know in order to repair uh, engines on a Toyota car. Uh, if you're an independent repair shop, or if, for that matter, you're a Toyota repair shop trying to repair a Mercedes-Benz, uh, you don't have as much information. And it was decided five or six years ago in governmental precincts in the European Commission uh, that this potentially posed a number of problems. They had perhaps some competitive issues. They had some uh, issues with auto emissions and the ability of manufacturers and independent repair shops to effectively uh, repair each other's uh, uh, engine systems with respect to air quality and emissions control. And there were some, some other commercial concerns. So the EU Enterprise Directorate, uh, one of the essentially cabinet departments of the European regional government, asked uh, the automobile industry uh, to work on a method for exchanging information uh, across those uh, OEM and independent repair shop uh, boundaries. Uh, after nothing happened for a little while, the way we hear it, they essentially uh, politely asked them uh, in, in uh, stern tones to start an OASIS technical committee, uh, which was chaired by a, uh, a, a uh, regulator and on which about half the members were uh, automobile OEMs, the other half were uh, uh, repair uh, or uh, repair information providers. Uh, they worked for several years and designed a standard for the exchange of information that would allow a OEM to put the relevant data about an engine or a model or a part up in a, a place where others could then draw it down afterwards and use it for the purposes intended by the government, uh, and uh, spent about a year working on an acceptable data standard. Now, one of the, uh, one of the standards stories that I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, uh, is that things don't always work the way you think they will, uh, and in this case... Uh, they, uh, I actually attended several of these meetings at, at the request of the chair. And, and uh, towards the end, it became clear that uh, using some good consultant resources and careful thought, they had reached a standard that everyone uh, found acceptable. And, and it seemed to work technically and covered the material and was easy to use and consume. Uh, but they also decided that they disagreed about uh, the, the uh, idea that the standard should be voluntarily adopted because somebody has to pay for all this. And so, as you can see from the pointers and the URIs that are provided, at their last meeting they voted not to adopt or approve the final standard because uh, they didn't want to be in the position of, uh, of having the government claim that they'd agreed to this and therefore we have to start providing the information free of charge. Uh, next slide, please, taking us to slide 17. Uh, the end of this story is that after a pause of a year or two, uh, and I'm sure some other conversations to which we're not privy, 
uh, the relevant government decided to impose the standard anyway. And so you can find at these sites, the bottom of this slide, that a, a, a EC directive was issued uh, instructing uh, the uh, relevant actors within the automobile industry to use this standard. Uh, and uh, uh, it's now law uh, uh, because it wasn't voluntarily adopted and, and the government wished them to, uh, to have the benefit of that data exchange. Next slide to slide 18. And the reason I'm mentioning all this isn't just to tell you one of those how standards sometimes um, uh, get put into legislation stories, but also because this standard is entirely an RDF schema. Uh, the standard did, I, I personally thought, a very good job of making use of Dublin Core and some UBL elements and some other elements, uh, and there was a lot of good reuse, uh, and it's essentially an RDF structure for uh, exchanging the part and performance information necessary for a repair shop to know everything they need to know in order to fix the, uh, the uh, system in question. Uh, I want to call your attention to this for two reasons. First, because uh, we think it's notable uh, that, that RDF is now the law of the land for an industry that requires certain sorts of uh, data exchanges uh, in Europe. Uh, the other reason I want to call it to your attention is because uh, this is one kind of user community. Uh, we're talking about OEMs who are intimately familiar with all of the technical details of the, uh, the systems and parts they create and their repair, uh, communications with uh, repair shops who are equally potentially intimately familiar with that and have expertise uh, and in intermediate providers of information who also uh, make their living understanding the structure and nature of the underlying data. Uh, and we're talking about a committee where there was outside intervention essentially from a regulator to make sure that all the stakeholders were present, or at least a, a, a pretty good cross-section of stakeholders. So uh, takeaway from this is that this is a top-down uh, system. Is it, is it taxonomic? It's absolutely a taxonomy. Is it ontological? Well, it probably falls a little short of that. But what it is is a top-down structure that, nevertheless, uh, it works because it's being imposed on a bunch of people who have a high degree of expertise, a high degree of common understanding, and uh, uh, were carefully uh, picked to be representative of all the stakeholders in that industry. Uh, whether these things are evolved as top-down imposed structures of meaning or uh, bubbling up from the bottom is mediated systems that require negotiation or change over time is the theme I'm trying to draw out of these examples. And with that, that's all I have to say about the first case, the Auto Repair Information TC. Let me now move from data to services and slide 19, uh, which is uh, my attempt to give you at least a little insight into what's happening in the world of wisdom meaning. Uh, uh, there's a lot here, and there's a lot more that a short introduction won't uh, give us time to discuss, but I, I want us to make sure that we note this as one of the interesting areas where semantic methods are bubbling up and, and posing issues for us all. First, slide 20, let me tell you what we tell uh, people uh, generically about uh, semantics and services and uh, why this is all important. Uh, the interesting challenge for us uh, uh, in, in as, as 
creators of standards that are used for business facilitation and for data exchanges that have economic value is that we have to try and make it possible for the users to understand, use fastly, and and deploy in a repeatable, auditable manner uh, not only the information that they send back and forth and that forms the basis for their contracts, commitments, and decisions, but also uh, they they need to be uh, confident as to its meaning. Uh, And, of course, this comes up in the topic of, of data objects like a, a entity called price or an entity called name or an entity called address, but it also comes up in the context of services. In a service-oriented architecture, uh, we, it is our hope that uh, transactors, and in fact multiple groups of transactors, will all be uh, collaboratively consuming uh, computational activities and that they will all have the same understanding <laughs> regarding what they're consuming. Uh, when I ping this endpoint, uh, uh, to use SOA lingo, and I access a computational method behind it, uh, do I know uh, whether I'm getting the temperature at the airport in Calcutta? And do I know in, in whether it's uh, Fahrenheit or Celsius? And do I know when the temperature uh, was taken? Uh, and, and in order to really make use of something that purports to give me the airport temperature in Calcutta, I'd like to know all those things. I'd also like to be able to discover it and discover those attributes, that information, on an automated basis, if at all possible. Next slide to slide 21. Let me tell you a short story. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the old, um, the old uh, European tale of Heidi, uh, but there is a scene in that tale where the little girl runs through the woods uh, and, and is, is being sought. And, and uh, you, you can't grow up in the in the mien of that story. Uh, without having this vision of this little pigtailed girl running through the woods and having folks calling after Heidi, Heidi, looking high and low for her. Uh, it's a little bit like that out there if you try and consume web services. Uh, I uh, attended a wonderful meeting a couple years ago put on by the, uh, the Integration Consortium. Uh, nice folks. And they ran uh, uh, a, a demo, which I've talked about for... I think probably once every month for the 24 months since I attended. Uh, and let me tell you about it. Uh, we, the, the group was meeting in Banff, Canada, and they, they brought a whole bunch of systems integrators and web services folks together for a three-day meeting. And as one of the, uh, the entertainment items, uh, they, they decided to hold a, a, hold a web services challenge. And essentially the rules were bring two or three of your experts and their software, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll walk, put them in a room at 6 p.m., and uh, give them a problem. Here, solve the following problem. And then we'll all go away, lock the door, and come back 24 hours later, you know, sleeping and eating are optional. And at 6 p.m. the next night, we'll come look and see what everybody's implementation and GUI and system looks like. And we'll, you know, give a, a, a little gold cup or something to the, uh, to, the, to the winner. What a fun exercise. Uh, well, fun for me. I was an observer. I wasn't locked in the room overnight. Uh, the problem that was given them was precisely this. Go to the web. Look at Amazon.com, the uh, well-known web retailer. Here is an ISBN number for a book. Create something that will find and buy that book. Then take that purchase across to eBay, the rather well-known 
web seller and auction facilitator. Arrange in whatever way you think is best and most automatable to buy, to sell that same book that you just bought on Amazon and sell it on eBay. And show your work. Uh, and with that, I pretty much locked the door and walked away for 24 hours. Now, I'll just mention by way of local color that eBay and Amazon both did have then and do have now essentially APIs and, and pages that tell you how to access their their uh, their functions and how to use web services to invoke transactions automatically. So there, there was something for these guys to, to look at. Uh, when the door was opened, <laughs> 24 hours later, there were some really cool implementations, I have to say, even in, in, in 2005. However, uh, what I found most interesting was uh, talking to the various implementers. They, they all had created neat, uh, neat uh, graphic interfaces or text interfaces that, that would find and buy and sell and identify the book and offered a bunch of options. And it, just, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun to see how that was done. But they, almost every one of them had an interesting comment. They said they, they, were, they were very cranky about the fact that they'd had to go to the Amazon site and go to the eBay site and figure out which data items they were consuming and figure out which functions they were consuming. Because if you think about it for a second, transactionally, uh, you know, buying a book and selling a book really ought to be relatively uh, similar events. In fact, uh, God willing, uh, you know, you've got the same name, author, title, ISBN, number of pages, a lot of data about the book really ought to be the same in both transactions. There's a price entity that might change if you want to make a profit, but again, a lot of commonality there. Uh, the functions, look up the book, find the book, uh, you know, check availability on the book, buy, sell, pay, ship. You know, a lot of the functions ought to have been done on one side of the transaction were either the same as or the mirror image of the functions that were done on the other side of the transaction. And I, I bet you can see where this is going. Very little of the information we were told was reusable across the two transactions because even though each of those two large, competent expert organizations had created a perfectly plausible set of systems, data, and methods, they weren't the same and there didn't seem to be any convenient way to walk across and map them. So we were back to the same problem of, of 1980s EDI, which is that you... After all, the transaction structure is created and the message goes across the wire and it, it's received. A human still has to get in there and intermediate and read it and make sense of it and essentially act as the interpreter who walks it across to the other side of the room and then recasts it in a human transform so the, the next recipient can make sense of it. Uh, on to slide 22. So what does this tell us? Well, uh, it tells us that um, if parties are transacting and they can't understand each other, uh, we're either going to have uh, uh, no deal between them or we're going to have a, a fallacious deal where they think they've agreed to something but don't understand each other. Um, and if we can't automate that through interpolation of meaning, uh, then the only people who ever be able to deal with each other electronically are those who understand each other completely at the outset and happen to use the same taxonomies and data. 
Obviously, this is a problem. And now, for uh, slide 23, please, let's focus for just a second on the problem not of data components, like price, like name, like ISBN, but the problem of service definitions, like the temperature at the Kolkata airport. Uh, you know that there is a W3C standard called WSDL, which essentially, with some augmentation from their later production WS addressing, puts a post-it note on the access point or endpoint for every offered service that's supposed to describe what the service is. So we have a function for, for interrogating services. The problem is what's on the post-it note. If the material on the sticky note isn't organized in some rigorous way, then it can't be consumed in an automated way. There are a bunch of interesting different approaches to this. My point is to mention several of them to highlight the problem and to talk in a little more detail about one of them and what I think that may indicate. First, I want to point out that the Open Application Group, a organization like OASIS, although it works in a few different uh, uh, contexts and is particularly very uh, close to the automobile industry, uh, wasn't going to wait around for somebody to solve the problem of meaning and whistles and came up with a, a verb concept, which you can see in their material, which I think is just fascinating and worth noting. It's, it's completely different, I think, than what the folks who wrote Wisdell thought would happen. But OEG, I found something to write in that sticky note, and they've specified it, and they're going forward with it, and it's an implementation in several industries. Uh, there's another interesting second view coming from what I would call the, 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 uh, the, the classic web services originators, some of the large software companies that really uh, got behind web services in the first place. And I've also provided a uh, URI there on slide 23 to uh, more generally the W3C workshop in Innsbruck uh, where this was discussed and the problem was noted. Uh, and also specifically to one of the presentations from one of the, uh, one of the software companies in which they describe where they think WSDL and web services is going and then describe the possible parallel evolution of uh, semantics for services as a much later event. But what they had to say also is rather interesting. I recommend uh, browsing that, uh, the, the output from that uh, workshop to anyone who wants to follow up on it. Uh, it didn't, though, lead to any immediate work products or, uh, or, or uh, uh, KM solutions. So let me go on to mention, then, a project uh, that actually was presented originally to the W3C, if I recall correctly, at that workshop, but as, uh, as it didn't seem to, uh, to conform perfectly to uh, the W3C's direction at the time, they ended up bringing it to OASIS, and that's called the OASIS Semantic Execution Environment. TC. Next slide, slide 24. Uh, essentially, the work of this SEE technical committee, which has been going on for several years now and is still producing work, uh, is an architecture for, uh, for adding semantic content to, and then importantly, intermediating, interpolating between the uh, readings that different transacting parties give to uh, service descriptions. And they, they call this function mediation. You can see uh, the URIs at the bottom of slide 24, which give you a considerable amount of detail. 
Uh, as with everything else here, I'm just going to skim the surface, slide 25. There are three slides here, uh, happily taken from one of our recent symposia at which this was discussed, that simply illustrate the concept of uh, different services, of course, each representing different parties who offer that service, uh, uh, attempting to agree on uh, meanings for data and meanings for services, rather like that Amazon and eBay example, but with <laughs> with a uh, deliberate uh, uh, deterministic step of mediation in the middle, which could be a private service but also could be a deterministic algorithm uh, to help the each transaction reconcile the eBay price and the Amazon price, the eBay offer and the Amazon acceptance, the eBay uh, indication of availability and the Amazon indication of availability, and so on. Next slide to slide 26. There is essentially a intermediary that acts as a mediator in their structure, and I encourage you uh, to look further into their work to see how precisely they achieve this. You can see next slide to slide 27. That, there's, uh, that this is proposed to be done uh, in a way that it can be uh, automated rather than uh, involve a, a, uh, an outside agent as mediator, although I believe that that also is still potentially facilitated for classes of transactions or markets where the parties prefer to have a, some sort to, to essentially purchase some sort of outside service or arrange for some sort of outside mediation. Of meaning when they don't agree, because again, remember these are these are transactors. These are two parties to a data exchange or a commercial transaction, and by definition, although they choose to uh, work together, they don't necessarily trust each other in the sense that they might not unqualifiedly accept each other's interpretation of what the word tax or price or availability, for example, means, or what the service represents when it sends you that information. Next slide to slide 28. And here I am simply going to um, manifest my own biases regarding the reason why we need uh, mediation. Uh, to borrow an old uh, commercial slogan, uh, standards are like potato chips. No one can eat just one. I put this slide into a lot of public presentations because it's frequently the case that that uh, laypersons and even experts forget that even a simple email consumes many, many standards, all of which have to work together somehow. Slide 29. Uh, another case of this that came up early in my work with Oasis was when uh, the Asian bird flu issues were significant five years ago or so, and we were asked to help the U.S. Centers for Disease Control uh, demonstrate how information on epidemiology uh, and outbreaks of, of uh, flu and uh, the location and availability of vaccine could be moved around the Internet in some meaningful way with some meaningful degree of, of message integrity and identification of, 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 uh, of content author. And we put together at that uh, three or four EBXML standards, SAML, ExactML, uh, uh, Adobe donated some functionality with respect to XForms, UBL. We basically did a mashup based on those standards, uh, and between one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven of those standards, we were able to uh, more or less fulfill on the fly the uh, the bird flu uh, use case, slide 30. Uh, 
what that tells me about standards is that architecturally we have to be prepared to tolerate a great deal of diversity uh, uh, in data structures. Not everyone's going to use the same thing. Not everyone's going to use the same uh, uh, specification, even for infrastructure matters. Uh, and as a result, if we want widespread adoption, we actually have to be biased in favor of systems that work with Catholicity and will plug into more than one thing, a method or standard or data structure or taxonomy that says, you must use me, and if you use me, you must use my ten friends here as well, and you must use nothing else, is a method that's asking an awful lot of a diverse world. So uh, I have to say I think that at Oasis in our, in our, our members' behavior and in our design, uh, we, we're, we're biased towards mashups. We're biased towards bottom-up approaches, and we'll, let's keep that issue of bottom-up in mind here as we progress. Uh, look, looking at the clock, it looks like I'm more or less keeping with the schedule, so let's move on to slide 31 and talk about our third case, the common alerting protocol, which, frankly, I'm mentioning only to make the point that uh, you don't want to fix a, uh, uh, a, a, a small uh, problem with a big solution. Sometimes you need a small hammer, slide 32. Essentially, the common alerting protocol is a simple XML envelope for some basic data about emergencies. The fire is a Class 4 fire. It is burning on this hillside, and we learned about it at this time you know, please send fire trucks or, you know, the, the, the outbreak of bird flu to which we want to call your attention is occurring in this city and has the following severity rating and requires uh, attention from the following agency. Those sorts of very basic bits of information are the, the, the things that the common learning protocol was designed to address. Uh, you can uh, see on slide 33, please, uh, that it's a very light degree of organization. There is no uh, uh, RDF or anything like it here. There's simply a couple of simple enveloping elements designed each to tolerate diverse information coming from a variety of sources. And if you think about the way emergencies work, that probably makes sense. This is almost an anti-semantic example. Uh, unless we understand semantics broadly to mean anything that will organize information to the degree that's meaningful for a user base. This user base, uh, consider this, is made up of, of sudden collections of diverse government departments and volunteers who come together on an ad hoc basis to deal with an emergency. Think about the tsunamis that hit a couple years ago. You have uh, relief agencies multiple governments, uh, you have police and rescue and fire and other sorts of su medical support, teams from governments who are drawn from multiple departments who do not work together. There is no opportunity for them to pre-negotiate anything by way of data protocols. Uh, they are sending information over cellulars. They are sending information over car phones, over radios. Uh, there's a tremendous diversity and, and uh, 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 chaos to their methods of communication. This is not a group who's going to get together and agree on an ontology. 
This is not a group that's going to get together and agree on. And you're lucky if they're all speaking the same language. So uh, a strict KR approach would be unlikely to meet their needs. And yet, by throwing a few basic categories around the data that is transmitted, here is the picture of the fire. Here are the geographic coordinates of the area in question. Here is the information regarding the severity and time associated with the event and so forth. Apparently, that very light degree of organization has nevertheless been extremely useful to emergency agencies attempting to coordinate. Next slide to slide 34. We've been blessed with a number of implementations, including in the U.S. from essentially the weather folks, the NOAA, uh, as well as our geodetic survey, the USGS, that is in use in some of the similar agencies in several other nations. It uh, was accepted by the uh, ITU as a recommendation now approved by them as well. We had a wonderful workshop in Geneva around this last year. And uh, there's a great deal of interest in, in this light level layer of organization. So, moral of the story. This group is practically the antithesis of my auto repair story. Slide 35. Uh, they are heterogeneous. There is no opportunity to agree on meaning in advance. Uh, there is a rather uh, high imperative to leave data like a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a photograph, a map shot, a raw report in the original form so as to not to to disturb it by a transform in some uh, uh, difficult-to-know uh, 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 method that, that can't be undone later. And so uh, this extremely light level of imposing meaning on the work has proved to be the right amount of medicine for that group. And with that, I'm going to move on to another case. We've got two more to go. Slide 36. Um, I'm trying to hit a hopeful note here, and in each case, we're talking about a use case and some of the things that are done to solve it and the way that they are or are not fulfilled by greater or lesser degrees of semantic operation using formal or informal systems. Uh, on this one, I'm afraid I have to call it a, a, a lament rather than a hopeful note so far. Slide 37. Uh, I want your help in calling to the attention of this community of uh, practical uh, semantic experts and purveyors of meaning that one of our little problems kicking around in, in the back closet is an increasing desperate need for unique identifiers for resources. And, of course, by resource, I mean broadly any possible kind of data entity, any possible kind of document, any possible kind of picture, sound, word. I mean physical resources that are represented, what uh, an old guy would call first-class objects, you know, the fire truck, the fire department, the person driving the fire truck, the location to where they're driving. These are all... Uh, represent amends. They are all things that we need to talk about some days. And in many of the standards discussed today and many others, we have this problem of a temptation and a desire to 
give them some permanent identifier. Uh, now, in the area of web pages and documents, the IETF and the W3C, of course, have done a lot with URIs uh, to address this problem. But remember, we're talking about a, a much larger superset of these things that includes locations, fire trucks, and a bunch of other things that don't fit onto websites. There are many schemes for this. You all know what a universal product code is. And uh, what is now GS1 has been working and extending that idea uh, and has its own financial model. You may know of extensible resource identifiers, an OASIS committee which is taking the URI, URN concept, and trying to generalize it into something that could refer to anything of the large classes to which I was referring. You probably know about UUIDs. You may remember, although there's some corners where, where folks are trying to deprecate them today, URNs. You may or may not know about the ITU scheme called ASN1 or the, the, uh, the, the project UDEF, which currently, at least in terms of standardization, the open group has been trying to house and help. And I'm sure there are many others. Uh, it's not precisely a semantic problem. But so many of the software programs, uh, systems, uh, uh, clouds of invoices and alerts and demands and notifications and contracts running over the Internet, so many of them already consume one or more of these systems that we're, we're, we're coming to a time when we'll have some significant issues with how to generate them, how to reconcile them, whether we're going to use some of these and not others, uh, when they are generated, who generates them, who keeps them unique, uh, how do you get one, do you have to pay for it, uh, and so forth and so on. It's a real emerging issue under the hood of a lot of these, these systems that create uh, messages with meaning. Uh, so I want to I simply highlight that as, a, as a, a problem adjunct to the semantic content of e-commerce messages, which... It, uh, about which we're, we're fretting and watching and trying to be productive and move on, although it would be fun to discuss if that's something that people want to discuss during the Q&A section. With that, I move on to slide 38 and our last uh, substantive topic. Here's the uh, is it sixth, fifth uh, instance to discuss. And that, of course, is the fairly well-known core components project slide 39. Uh, Ontolog happens to be a community which has largely been involved in or watched enough of the original work stemming from the 1999 starts of the EBXML project all the way through UBL and several incarnations of the CFACT, which continue today, that I don't think I need to give background on what the Core Components Project is. Uh, for those of you who want to know more, I'd suggest the simplest thing you can do is, depending on what, what level you want to, to approach it, Google it or go look at the original conceptual description that preceded core components in ISO IEC 11179 or go take a look at any one of the schemes that exists today that implements this uh, including what we hope is the, the leading edge of eventual harmonized development at UNCFACT. Suffice to say, the idea, and again, now we're talking about data elements as opposed to services, 
for this topic, was that all of the folks out there who are using data elements in production for messages that achieve e-business goals would bring their methods of representation and their favorite data elements into a harmonization process wherein they would be somehow deterministically compared, classified, combined, and contextualized with the result that we'd have a common storehouse of elements for reuse and thereafter uh, participants could simply dip into the pool, the repository of common approved elements, and reuse more and thereby confuse each other less. That's the theory. And it's a good theory, and we may, we may see that. Now, in fact, um, it's been a slow, difficult process. And in a way, some of the, uh, some of the users have gotten ahead of the harmonization process. We have a number of implementers of the approved core component methodology, which is currently ISO 15000 Part 5, including OASIS's UVL committee, uh, the financial-oriented work done by SWIFT and others as ISO 2022, uh, OEGI, who has, as I understand it, implemented the core components methodology fully in their creation of their uh, business messages, their BODs in their version 9, and some others. So we have a bunch of, a bunch of folks using the methodology. And what we were hoping for, if you'd, if you'd asked Bill McCarthy and I back in the year 2000 or so, um, uh, Bill's still young and cute, but this was definitely back when I was younger and cuter. Uh, I think we were hoping that all that stuff would get put into the common stew pot and be resolved into a smaller common group of known shared elements uh, a lot faster. And it may be that we were not only young but also naive to think that that would be a quick process. I can certainly... Uh, report, as I'm sure most of you know, that the UNCFACT uh, committees designated to do this work are forging on ahead and have received many contributions and have turned out several iterations of their library. But in a way, a number of those separate systems seem to grow up and take on a life of their own and, and become fully realized really before the, the CFAC process got up enough of a head of steam to create a large, complete library. So the the, the, the donators are a little ahead of the harmonization process. Slide 40. Um, one of the most interesting issues to me here is what role semantics could play in that process. Uh, I have to say that, that it would be silly of me to even try and recap uh, Professor Dogak's presentation from last week, which m many of you heard and all of you can uh, read asynchronously at the Ontolog site. But the, the thing that's interesting to me is that processes like hers and like the proposals several others have made to apply at least RDF to the core component harmonization process have come more or less from the outside. It was not integral to the methodology or to, to, the, to the plans to harmonize in the first place. I, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if semantic technology was just not widely and, uh, and, and, and pervasively available in stable form when this first came up. I don't know if we have 
as a larger community have failed to retrofit it. Uh, I note that for those of you who follow core components harmonization, the CFACT procedure for implementing that methodology is essentially a juried work. That work is submitted, uh, it is reviewed, it, it, it is, it is uh, not so much deterministically uh, evaluated and compared, but rather it is, uh, it is compared and evaluated through a human process. Uh, now, whether that gives pride of place to the first donation in, you know, if, if I send in a, a good invoice in 2006 uh, and somebody sends in a better invoice in 2007, uh, how, how, do I, how does the process know that one is better or one is, in fact, a logical subset of the other or uh, one is uh, more likely to encompass a broader use case than the other? These are all being essentially uh, juried as human decisions. And it's interesting to speculate about whether uh, what results from the fact that all these contributions were not made at the same time. If I am um, some industry that is right now uh, creating its own uh, trade documents and invoices and so forth, and I, I didn't know about this process, and I come along in 2009 and I discover that that, that the, the things I want to use have already been created as components, but I'm con- I'm convinced that my use case is not covered, and that so I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm either uh, a one-off process that requires something different than what the core components uh, to date of offer, or that in some way they don't meet my needs. Uh, am I in a different position than I would have been if I had showed up in 2005? That, those are all good questions which the CFAC folks are trying very hard to answer. But I think, I think it would be well for us to ask whether we're doing enough as a community of knowledge representation experts and aficionados either to assist that process or to make sure that once it's underway, its outputs are meaningfully consumed by transactors. Uh, this brings me back to the top-down versus bottom-up question, and that's where I'm going to end today with a question about that. And of course, we're still on slide 40. In a sense, the, the core components harmonization process is expected to be bottom-up because, uh, you know, CFACT folks didn't just sit down and make up invoices. They started from donated models. Uh, what happens when more donated models come along later? Well, if they... Uh, get into the system in time to be harmonized into the the then approved set that's still bottom up but thereafter when a user comes along to use them it feels top down to the user if they're being given an approved set of components but the they do not believe or cannot discern that the phenomena they want to represent are properly represented by the components on offer of course, they can simply decline to use them, but uh, it's sometimes the case that instead of simply walking away, they prefer to join the fray and uh, argue that the represented object that's present in the core components library is incomplete because it doesn't encompass their need. Uh, can we help that, that anticipated future conversation with semantic technology? Would, a, would an ontological approach that starts with assumptions about meaning 
solve that problem for those people, or would it only solve the problem if there's pre-existing agreement on the assumptions that underlie uh, the information? Uh, it, it feels to me like that's going to be one of our most important challenges over the next couple of years, and I'd actively uh, solicit not so much from my official professional role but simply as a long-term participant in this project and a hopeful uh, member of the community who wants to see it succeed. So let's listen all of your thought about how we can make sure that, our, that the knowledge representation expertise we have is wheeled in practical ways so as to be both of assistance to the core components harmonizers, but also of assistance to those who will use, consume, and evaluate core components in their transacting. And again, I think Professor Dogak's presentation last week gives us some valuable pointers in that direction, but I think this is going to be a continuing conversation. And with that, you can turn to slide 41, which is simply my last slide. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to come talk with you, to give you a presentation, and to tell you about some of the things that we're excited about and, and concerned about and look forward to a conversation that will continue on this topic. Peter, I'm done. Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, that is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I, I think this has to enter into the uh, our, our body of knowledge as a classic because you had so eloquently uh, described why people need semantic interoperability in the first place and all the issues uh, that has come up in between, uh, illustrating them with great cases uh, that are down-to-earth and uh, pragmatic. So we are at the segment uh to ask people for their uh, questions, uh, if they have questions uh, and, or if they have remarks to make. And uh, so let me repeat the process again. Uh, if you have, if you want to make a remark, please press a 1-1 one, one on your keypad now and then we'll try to queue everything up. Uh, everybody up. Uh, for those who are who think that they don't have a very clean line, a uh, voice line into the session, uh, we are running a chat session, uh, which is available on the session page. Uh, if you scroll down uh, to to the right place, I mean, further down the page, uh, where it says uh, that, that where there's a link to bring you to a uh, chat session that is browser-based, so you can type out your question, and we uh, and we can have uh, uh, Mr. Clark uh, field those as well. So so far, I can see one hand uh, up from Professor Dojek on the chat session. I have a typed-up uh, question from Deborah McPherson. And let me see if we have anybody. Uh, we have yes. I have the hand up uh, on 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 the uh, on the voice session as well. So 
maybe uh, let's start with uh, Professor Dojek. Uh, go ahead, uh, Professor Dojek. Uh, star three to unmute and make sure we can hear you first. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you very much for the enlightening uh, talk. I would like to have a, a few remarks regarding the issue raised. Uh, the component technical specification, uh, in fact, uh, has defined some co-components, but uh, more importantly, those co-components are defined context-independent, and also there are eight context domains have been defined. So it is expected that each co-component will be customized to a context domain. And there was an email in the Ontolog forum, as I have mentioned during my talk, from John Nicol, and he mentioned that when you have uh, about 300 values in each context domain, then uh, this becomes unmanageable. So um, I think, uh, first of all, uh, our approach uh, over here is uh, using small hammers uh, to solve the problem and having a practical approach the problem. So, using uh, semantic tools to the extent uh, possible, uh, and uh, in, in other words, to help uh, the community rather than to solve the whole problem, to develop tools to help them. So, the first idea is. Uh, and through an ontology and annotating the co-components through uh, these uh, context ontologies. Because the success of uh, co-component-based specification lies in the fact that you should be able to discover and reuse. The more reuse is possible, it will improve interoperability. But if you define, uh, a core, uh, if you customize a core component to several context domains, several, uh, in that case, their discovery must be uh, helped through tools. And the first use of ontology is, is could, should be and could be this. And uh, secondly, uh, as uh, Jimmy Clark uh, mentioned during his talk, uh, I mean, there are so, although several uh, document standards uh, apply the CCDF technology, the resulting documents are so much different. They differ in structure, they differ in the code list they use, uh, they differ in the element position and uh, name, but the thing is that uh, we can also, and what the industry does right now is, when they want to convert uh, one uh, document, uh, 
a document instance conforming to a standard, to another standard, they literally sit down and write exercise rules. And what can be done by through some semantic tools is at least partially automate this process to facilitate the translation of documents from one document format to another. Uh, <clears throat> this is all I have to say for the time being. Thank you. Thank you, Asuman. Uh, Jamie, you want to uh, make a remark on, uh, on that remark? Uh, no need at all. We completely agree. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, besides Suman, I actually have several questions, but, but let's uh, go through the question that Deborah McPherson has uh, already typed out on on the chat chat screen. Uh, Deborah, uh, would you unmute yourself with the star three or? Uh, Maybe alternatively, I can help read out your your question. Hi, Peter. Oh, yes, we can hear you now. Go ahead. Okay, good. Um, I'm just trying to understand, serving on the National BIM Standard Committee on the Consensus Task Force and also Model Implementation Guide. I'm just trying to understand what kind of, you know, how we should get, learn more about OASIS or what OASIS might have to do with the National PIN Standard and also OGC. I'm not sure I understand where the overlaps are. That, that's a great question, and thank you for asking it. And I have to say, you know, if, if you're on the National Consensus Task Force, uh, it sounds like you're already on the right course. We're, <laughs> uh, we're engineers. We're, we're supposed to reuse stuff. So uh, going to look for the elements that are already there is, is always the first right answer. Uh, I'll just share with you the note that uh, in similar exercises elsewhere, uh, there's been a, a, a great, uh, uh, there's been a lot of progress in creative and appropriate reuse. Uh, those of you who work with the U.S. federal government know that, uh, that that we've been told by OMB circulars for years that when we are trying to create a data structure, uh, we ought to go find a standard and use it, uh, especially if it's... Uh, uh, global or at least national and improved in context and it's in use uh, instead of invent something else and that's good that's good data engineering and there's a lot of instances of that I, I will mention just in passing uh, the work that the HITSP under HHS is doing to identify appropriate standards for use in health and health payment exchanges where we've been uh, throwing a lot of work into the pot to identify our standards and others that might fulfill their use cases. Uh, I think the uh, work on the, uh, let's see, Global Justice Data Exchange Model, which is now changing names, I think I've been told, uh, uh, primarily originally a state court's issue, but also the Department of Justice involved in the U.S., and the, the GXGDM has been also picked up and, and being used in part by a number of other countries now, uh, is another case of good work to find and reuse uh, standards already out there. Now, in the domain of NBIMS, uh, I want to mention uh, three things. First, um, 
while we do not impose a, a, a strategy tax on any Oasis project, we let people come in and, and do what they think as an expert group is best within each committee. We certainly uh, you know, talk them up and lean on them a little bit and use suasion to try and get them to reuse things instead of invent them. This is often successful. <laughs> and one of the areas where we've been blessed is that the Open Geospatial Consortium, who has uh, a good, strong, solid, comprehensive knot of expertise in location, uh, has, uh, has, has graciously brought people to our committees. Uh, we have a, a standing agreement with them to work together and a number of our standards, particularly including that common learning protocol that I mentioned today, where uh, it, there's OGC under the hood. So we're all, as to location, we're all on the same page and we're consuming their stuff and not reusing it. You know, nothing had to be invented. So uh, I'd have to say there's a, there's a very nice overlap of reuse in, in every compatible sense between Oasis's work and OGC's work, and we're always looking for opportunities to increase it now. Uh, there, there are, you know, for example, some cases where geolocation is, it does not cover all location cases in matters of delivery and address and shipping address and mailing address. Uh, you know, OGC doesn't supply some of those needs, and so our customer information quality technical committee, CIQ, uh, who works with the Universal Postal Union to, 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 to crack that set of problems, is doing some things that are outside of the scope, if I understand correctly, of OGC. And in fact, uh, it was fun to notice that when uh, Google Maps started to uh, consume addresses as well as uh, as well as, as uh, geospatial locations, the native, non-standardized, proprietary, but I guess more or less open architecture KML method used by Google Maps to represent locations actually has our CIQ elements, and they're reusing those too. So there's, there's an awful lot of virtuous reuse in location. Now, beyond location, and going to look at NBIMs, uh, if you don't already know, uh, and it seems unlikely, uh, since he's an uh, uh, omnipresent, talented guy, Toby Constantine, who I think is still on this call, who is the chair of our Open Building Information Exchange Technical Committee, Toby and his committee have been working very closely with the NBIMs process and have quite a bit of output and coordinated reuse to offer themselves to try and make sure that, that there is reuse between all of our other work and the building community. Toby, mm -hmm. if, if you're still on the call, and if, uh, if Peter, I can ask Toby to unmute, uh, this is one of those cases where a smart standards executive doesn't pretend to be an expert when he has real experts in the room, and I should ask Toby to, to, to respond further on behalf of our committee to Deborah's question. Yes, please. I mean, Toby, if you're still online, please press a star three, unmute yourself, uh, test your voice, and uh, shed light on uh, this question. Maybe we lost him. I know I heard him for a while, though. Yes, Deborah, yes. If, if, if he's not present today, I will simply make sure that I make the introduction between you two. Uh, hey, Deborah. That yeah, that would be great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, now I'm now I'm unmuted finally. It, there you go. <laughs> it took a while to wake it up. Um, I don't know if I consider myself an expert in pulling this together. I'm something who very much needs to pull it together. 
Um, I, I see there's a couple challenges. One is you're going from these very intense engineered worlds into the world of e-commerce, which a lot of Oasis is. They're, the, the, the two sides tend to hold their pens differently. Um, a lot of I've got a lot of feedback from the e-commerce side that our XML smells funny. Um, and one of the challenges is to get some people who understand that side of the fence to come back and work with this domain and say, this is how it smells funny, because it remains a bleak to me. Um, Obix is kind of uniquely blessed or cursed because, well, a lot of it is very transactional. Very, I mean, I think the huge amounts of, you know, trillion dollar a year e-business that, that could be won by playing in the e, uh, and having every building be an energy day trader is one side, but it's also very much part of the IFC world, which has got this massive thing on the other side. So it's kind of sitting at the fault line of two large um, ontology bases or semantic bases, whatever it is that we're calling them. And um, it took it's only just recently that I began to get a glimmer of understanding of how Obix would get a, sh a, a ontology shim into the um, um, NBIM's world. It, it takes a lot of, there's a lot of mistranslation between the two groups. Um, or between the three groups. And every time I'm asked about this, I'm, all I can, I, I go back to an old um, military joke, which, which has the um, Army and the Navy and the Air Force are told to secure a building. And the Army, um, surrounds the building and doesn't let anybody in or out. And the Navy sends in the Marines and they capture the building, go inside, and then uh, are focused on anybody attempting to enter the building. And the Air Force calls up a procurement officer and arranges a lease. And, and so we say secure at each other, and even in the standards committees, we, we don't know what we're talking about. We're all talking different languages. So there's sort of an ontology within the groups which interferes with developing ontology within the group's efforts. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think. I should probably add as a matter of local color that uh, Toby, a man who is every bit as shy as I am to speak his mind, actually essentially the facilities director for the University of North Carolina, and that the work that they've been doing with us in the OBEX committee for several years is about systems to use web services to interrogate and control uh, building devices, which include, you know, everything from HVAC to security to little boxes that I don't know what they do, but Toby's got a lot of them hooked up. <laughs> well, I'm not a facility director, but the um, – but – what we're exploring actively is trying to define we've got a low-level protocol, which is not very useful, barely useful semantically, and certainly not useful ontology, ontologically. And we're exploring whether and, – and when the NBIMS guys, when an architect designs a building, he doesn't say anything about the control systems. And we're hoping that as we define um, what NBIMS calls IDMs as the shims between – different NBIMS domains for building control systems, that'll be the hook upon which we can build uh, uh, semantics above the low-level name-value tag pairs that make up control systems. But that's just one hope, and that's my hope. That's a personal 
feeling, not an ex-cathedra obix chair feeling. You're going to have to load up your resume and join Ontolog so people can see more about your resume than if I'm misstating it. <laughs> it's a lot more impressive Absolutely. than I can make it sound, though. Thank you very much, Toby, and, and thank you, Deborah, for asking the question. And interestingly enough, uh, there are at least, I mean, four people besides yourself and Toby. Uh, I can see Michelle Raymond and Bob Smith also on this call. I mean, for I mean, to to have at least like four people very uh, consumed with like the NBIMS uh, problems and, and challenges. I mean, that that's wonderful. I'm, I I look forward to at least the four of you and a plus other ontolog members who may be interested in the resolving the same issues to to get together either offline start a project on ontolog start uh, I mean, join certain TCs at Oasis that are already working on this and so on uh, to to sort of uh, face the challenge head on. Right. Well, it helps a lot to know that IBM is is something worth focusing on because it seems to be something that's a little bit more in common than some other things. So that right that just alone is is really helpful. So thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Okay. Uh, that was it. Uh, Jamie, who had a question? No. Nope. Was making a remark. Someone said said Peter. I said Peter. You said start an ontolog project. How would I find out what an ontolog project is? Ah, <laughs> interesting question. I mean, uh, at, at least I mean for those who have not been around long enough, uh, Ontolog has very little process. I mean, and a- anything that we don't have a process for, we default to uh, the Oasis process. So, uh, an Ontolog project is sort of like a an Oasis TC. So you start almost, I mean, the same way, get a bunch of guys, write up a mission statement or a, a charter, get a, 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 an initial meeting, uh, and if there are more than three people, then we start a project homepage and you take it on from there. If you need to create a, a, a uh, mailing list or a set of mailing lists, uh, uh, you, you could do that in you get to use the collaborative work environment that has served us fairly well in the past. Uh, obviously, Ontolog is not a standard development organization. Uh, you can look at us as sort of upstream to that. Uh, I, I sort of compare ourselves to the conversation at the tavern uh, after a day's work. So, uh, But interestingly enough, a lot of the uh, Ontolog community membership actually are involved in some open standards, uh, one way or the other. Whether they're they're like like people worked, uh, who had worked on Common Logic as an ISO spec, or people like myself coming out of Oasis. I mean, uh, like Bill McCarthy coming out of I mean all these different uh, standards organizations, uh, Rex Brooks. And so on, as uh, and Dojak, and so on. So, so there are plenty of uh, SDO type folks uh, in the community. So, uh, and please, by all means, I mean, if you needed a conversation before going into an Oasis TC, then 
this is a good place to have that conversation. Uh, by the time you, you move over to Oasis, I mean, I guess real work is expected. Here we, we can chat about it, I mean, throw things around, brainstorm, and have fun. And Peter? Yeah? Pro- probably worth mentioning the other distinction which you raised in the chat window as well. Uh, but I, I, even before getting that, I have to say tavern. Tavern, I love that analogy. That, see, that, that's, what, that's what we're doing wrong. We need more comfortable seating and better drinks. Uh, but, but seriously, uh, uh, Peter also had asked in the chat window that I make some comment about IPR. Yes, it's, yes, I mean, it's a good segue into that. Yes, I, I don't want to talk about that a lot because it's, it's a subject which makes the eyes of any sane person cross uh, most of the time. Uh, but I, I should say this. When, when, when Peter describes the distinction between an informal talking process like the ontologue community and an official standards process like Oasis or many others, one of the important distinctions is that when you step across the boundary into one of those official projects, you acquire uh, uh, obligations. You are uh, usually, for a variety of reasons which, which involve the rules of the organizations, but frankly also trade law and, and competition law, uh, you, you acquire some obligations to disclose your own interests, especially if you have exclusive rights via patent copyright or some other method. Uh, you acquire obligations often uh, to, to make those uh, rights available. Uh, Oasis, a couple of years ago, sharpens up its rules to the point now where if you're participating in a particular project, you are immediately obligated to make some, some of your rights available on specific terms so that the final output of a project is is able to be uh, widely deployed, even even if you claim independent rights in it. Uh, I know that CFACT also uh, sharpened up its rules a year or two ago now. So there's there's a a, a, a proper distinction between informal uh, talking shops and wiki sort of projects and pickup games and a formal standards project uh, for that reason. Yep, pickup games is good, but but I, I guess. All in all, uh, the, the end point is and, and, uh, are common in that we are advocates for open standards and uh, besides that, I mean, open knowledge, open technology, and, and anything that is open. So except for the fact that we kind of frown on people trying to uh, use the space as a sort of free billboard uh, for commercial products,
could actually be the our next generation standards, not just ontologies but formal ontologies, because today's standards, or, or at least back in 2002, uh, all, almost all standards are written for human consumption, and uh, with ontology or an ontological engineering type folks, we are looking towards a world when uses of standards may be uh, humans or may be software agents. So we said uh, if we can formally define and axiomatize uh, on, uh, standards, uh, that could become our next generation standard. And, and the, the, the sort of metaphor we use is maybe UPL 4.0 would be written in uh, first-order logic. Uh, well, uh, quite a few years have gone by, and, and obviously it hasn't uh, gone that, that far, but I think uh, we will continue that effort. And that's sort of, yeah. Before you go on to your third point, can, can we stop for comments on the second one a little? Sure. Yes. Uh, we've got several NIST people who were here, and, and I hope I mean, they, they, they might uh, chime in. Or I, I just want to say that I mean, I, one of the things we've learned now after 10 years of XML, and I don't know that this is a lesson we talked about much on the anniversary, is that on some level XML ought to be or ought to be becoming trivial. It ought to be receding into our, into the background of our, our, our worries, much as we don't, uh, today, uh, uh, spend a lot of time worrying about picking up the telephone and getting a dial tone. Uh, the, if you pick up any one of the popular, well-used XML specifications in wide use today from, from any source, uh, what we hope is the case, Personally, what I hope is the case is that you will look under it and see that it's a data structure and that we are, and that the majority of, of effort that is needed from an enterprise or entity to, to adopt and use that system is not acquiring of XSLT competency. Uh, it, it's the uh, norming of their behaviors into the the uh, the 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 worldview and assumed structure that's represented by a structure of data, which in this case happens to be notated in XML. Although I have to say, a lot of UML shows up as well. Uh, if we're successful in this project of norming business and transactional exchanges, then one would hope that our uh, our standards creators are writing for the ages. And that our, our, our UBL and our SWIFT and our CFAC people who are creating, you know, invoices are not just worrying about the XML representation of them, but are actually uh, uh, coming from a, a taxonomic worldview that will, uh, th so that the structure that they embed currently happens to be represented in XML will survive, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a future in which maybe XML isn't used at all or is supplanted by other things. Uh, I, I, everyone I know who's been a long-term player in this broad conversation hopes uh, that that's where it's going. Certainly even by the end of the, XML, of the EBXML project in 2001, those of us that were talking about it at the time could see the end of the XML part of the work. Now, uh, frankly, the rollout of that has been 
slower than we'd hoped. Uh, there's been a lot of work in standards organizations to canonicalize particular XML styles or, you know, structures where uh, you've got five or six different ways that you could equally represent something in valid XML, but nevertheless, you know, mine is an attribute and yours is an element or what have you. And we, we seem to spend a lot of time canonicalizing around making sure that the existing tools will all consume something. Uh, I hope that we're spending at least much time making sure that our underlying data structures are valid and that some of these, these standards, now that they're out in the world and have been issued, you know, they're available for critique. And one of the critiques, one of the things that has to, has to interrogate the standard is whether the, the underlying assumptions about the world that is being represented are, in fact, holding up in production. And every, every one of the use cases that's coming along and insisting on being served fits within that worldview. And if not, we better go back and fix the model. Uh, that's 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 our second round. You know, now now, now that we're all uh, the, the proud authors of a whole bunch of standards from a variety of organizations, now we have to somehow organize ourselves to be ready uh, uh, for the the people who call us and say that the real world uh, isn't supported sufficiently by our model in one or another aspect. Uh, and and I'm, I'm excited about that, but it's it's a serious challenge for us all. And I, I hope that there are semantic tools that will make that easier. Well said. And- and uh, not just the tools, but the, I, I guess uh, we could work together uh, between Ontolog and Oasis. I mean, to to sort of help uh, switch uh, switch people's mindset uh, in, in that direction. So maybe that that is a good segue uh, to allow me to sort of go into my third point, uh, which. This sort of a brief history of Ontolog, in a sense, uh, given that I, uh, uh, Jamie and I both mentioned that uh, Ontolog actually is an offshoot or spin-off from the UBLTC. That this was back in uh, year 2002. We, uh, of course, the naive. Uh, Ontolog community thought, I mean, the first thing we would tackle was to do, to convert UBL into an ontology. And that, and that project actually started as a project called UBL Ont, is still on our wiki, in March 2003. And guess what? Five years later, March 2008, we have Dojek last week giving a talk that seriously had converted uh, UBL into an ontology. I mean that that's sort of the challenge that that we would that I guess the community has to face. And uh, we we are so thankful that a group uh, led by Suman has worked on this. Uh, of course, I mean going back to to March 2008. After starting that effort, we very quickly found out that I mean that's too big and uh, 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 that's not even bite size, and we quickly sort of scaled that down to trying to represent uh, the the EBXML core component types. So just thirty some elements in the CCT. I mean the the the, the, not even the, the core components, but the basic building blocks that builds the core components, the core component types. And soon enough, I mean, we did uh, map that into first-order logic, provided the both 
the first order logic uh, mapping as well as a an R representation uh, called uh, SM. QCC, which stood for, I mean, it's an extension from Sumo, Milo, another IT-related uh, FOL ontology called uh, QoS, as well as the core component types. That that project was done, and uh, we were uh, very happy and wrote up a, our comments and fed that into the UNCFACT, CCTS, uh, public uh, solicitation to their V2.01 spec, uh, mentioning that, I mean, these are our observations, this is what could happen, and uh, consider us in version 3.0. And that was sort of uh, delivered January 2005. Guess what? Uh, 2008, we are still hoping to have a chance to sort of uh, work on this together uh, with the standards community. So uh, the moral of the story is, I mean, as, as Jamie has already so eloquently put it, is uh, there, there are huge challenges, and I guess we all need to have an open mind and, and try to work together. So uh, I'm really happy we finally have this occasion that, that uh, we can have uh, sort of a, a, someone in the Oasis leadership uh, to speak to this community and together let's try to find out uh, what can be done to, to move the ball forward. So back to uh, Jamie. That, that's interesting, Peter, and thanks for that background. It occurs to me that... Um, of course, you don't run UNC back, so... so. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I, I'm just kidding. I mean, since UNC fact is totally independent of, of uh, Oasis. Our, so, we we so have had an MOU and virtuous cooperation with them for years. Uh, and God bless them for taking on the, the gigantic problem of core components harmonization. As I was sitting and listening to what you were describing about trying to impose the first order logic model on that, one of the things that occurs to me is that, is that one of the attributes of the UBL set is that it holds still for certain periods of time. That alone, I mean, you know, the thing about, you know, you create first-order logic model, I mean, that's a lot of work. And uh, uh, one of our, our continuing challenges in the community of, of common data components is how to version and how to manage releases. Uh, and as I say, I mean, UBL 2.0 has been out for a couple of years and, and is, is uh, you know, stable. And that, that it makes it easier and more finite a task than you have a, a dynamic, constantly moving set of components. And that's not a uh, criticism. It's the core components library is supposed to be dynamic and evolving. Uh, I wonder if uh, I wonder if Bill McCartney is still with us because he has been closer in the last couple of years than I have, certainly to the harmonization process, and is a, a also somewhat of a more intelligent expert observer of it than I am. Uh, because I, I, I'd love to hear his take if he's available on on how we may be able to continue to, to help harmonization. What Thank you, Bill. Uh, Hello, Peter? Yes, yes, we can yeah. hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, well, thank you for the quick introduction, Jamie. The... Um, I really don't have much to say other than the fact that we're continuing to try to um, 
introduce, to use your terms, um, top-down ideas into the UNCFACT uh, process, primarily through the methodology as opposed to coming up from the core component stuff itself. So um, we do have a meeting coming up in Mexico City where we're um, trying to still put these two things together. But, I, I you know, the, the, the tension um, that you mentioned um, – between bottom-up and useful and utilitarian and first-in um, claim on all of these things and some kind of formalization that is always perceived as being introduced from um, a somewhat inexperienced outsider, usually academics, is is one that continues to um, to find a way to get to get both views in a working methodology in the context of an international standards body that requires, uh, you know, large meetings and large groups of people moving around in boats at every single step of the procedure is a continuing challenge. Um, so, yeah, certainly uh, UN, UNC fact, we're trying to introduce what I would call some ontological formal discipline to the process um, slowly but surely. Thank you, Bill. So, uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not discouraged, so uh, not by any means. Uh, we just have to continue because uh, that's why, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I usually use, like, I mean, if, if there's somewhere in the future, I'll use, I mean, version 4.0 or version 17.0. Uh, I mean, we knew at even at the start, that this wasn't going to happen the next year, mm -hmm. uh, despite the fact that I mean, others would say, I mean, "Does it really take that that long?" I mean, I, I guess I'm pragmatic enough to to know that it is it is going to take that long. It is certainly a very um, arduous, much much longer process than a person, a naive person like me, a professor, ever ever thought. Um, it just it just takes it seems a lot of time and a lot of political savvy and a lot of money to be quite frank with you which um uh because you've always got to be um there and present uh when the ideas are being um discussed and formalized and when different approaches are being evaluated so. that that's a great point bill and and I note that um one of the very strong pressures that we felt at Oasis over the last five years has been how to make our work more um, collaboratively asynchronous. Uh, we lay claim to global uh, standards, and we interoperate uh, across a daunting variety of locations, time zones, and languages. Uh, the, uh, the, the last century's model, the last decade's model of meetings, of physical face-to-face, -face, synchronous meetings uh, is practically one that excludes many stakeholders now. And so with every year, uh, we find our methods and our tools and, and perhaps most importantly, our rules are doing more and more to make sure that, that, that proposals are telegraphed in advance, are, are, are given notice, uh, that, that meetings uh, can provide information regarding and debate for proposals but that review periods there are web ballots in preference to physical votes at meetings you know we're doing an awful lot to try and make sure we do not 
disenfranchise somebody who happens to not be in the same time zone as a committee chair. And that's becoming more and more important as time goes on. Yeah. I do agree that um, that perhaps the way we work at it now doesn't seem to work really well. But I, but I'll go back to the EVXML. There we had 18 months, and we met every three months. Everybody was accountable every Friday or something else like that. I think the normal standards process itself is um, – uh, slows things down, but I think some, something like some kind of group effort where OASIS and UNCFACT and perhaps um, some other ISO groups or something like that got together and said, look at, and looked across the table and say, we're going to do something like we did with EBXML. We are going to solve this problem. We are going to meet every three months. Everybody has to have their act together and go. Um, might work. The, the normal international standards process is uh, is always got people um, giving just slices of their time as a part-time thing, and if we could somehow sort of get back on what we did there, um, I, th- I think we might stand a better chance of massively uh, sort of putting some effort at something like the formalization of the, the top part of the DBXML stack uh, using um, onto, you know ontological principles, something like that. If we ever get such an effort going together, then we might stand a chance of um, pulling it off in a year and a half or two years instead of slogging along piece by piece by piece. Bill, we should I don't know talk who, who, about that. There's, uh, yeah. there's other pieces in motion that, that are uh, not announced but worth further discussion. Okay, good, good, good. Wait, we, you we know my phone number, I hope. <laughs> if not, you can click on the little uh, light on today's session. So, yeah. Hey, uh, we're probably uh, down to the last opportunity. I, I can see uh, Suman Dojek's hand still up. Uh, Suman, uh, uh, if you want to make a remark, this is the chance. Uh, star 3. Uh, well, uh, considering all the discussions we had, we had, I wonder if uh, it would be meaningful to form a new TC on developing some semantic aid for document interoperability, but. I should also mention that, as Jamie Clark has mentioned, yes, uh, that uh, it seems the standards that are successful are the ones where the stakeholders are involved. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, all we, uh, we we won't find out if we. Don't try to start it, so uh, feel free. I guess there's a sort of uh, upstream process if you would uh, like to get some conversation going on Ontolog first, and I guess your your talk last week plus Jamie's talk this this week, I mean, could be a good platform to, to springboard to get that conversation going on the Ontolog forum. Uh, or if you already have a few people that you have lined up, uh, the OASIS process, I'm sure, would definitely be very accommodating. Right, Jamie? 
Oh, I, th- I think I'm I think I'm already behind in in uh, in replying to some of Professor Dogak's suggestions about that. But that's absolutely right. Fantastic. So uh, we have two more minutes. Uh, it's a great time to sort of uh, pass the, the, the floor back to. Uh, James Price Clark, our invited speaker, and uh, for his concluding remarks. Uh, Jamie, yours. Well, thank you for that, but I have absolutely no need to say anything other than to say that uh, that uh, I'm delighted uh, to, that this community is available to give thought to issues like this. Uh, we're, we're pleased to work with many of you, and we'll always be pleased to work with anybody else who uh, who finds our projects of use. And, of course, since we're an open standards organization, we love to have you participate as members, but you can also read everything we do out in the open uh, without any commitment whatsoever because it's all on the web. Uh, I'm uh, very grateful for the chance to come talk to you today, and I hope we'll be able to keep uh, some of these threads of conversation moving forward. Definitely. The, the feeling is mutual and on behalf of the community, thank you very much, Jamie, for giving this wonderful talk. And uh, thanks to everybody who were able to join us today. And this is it. Meeting adjourned. Bye-bye. Thanks very much, Peter. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>